Well, good morning and Shabbat Shalom. I'd like to um, open with prayer. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I declare this day that you are the creator of the universe. You are my God and my salvation. I pray that this study will honor you, honor those who perished in the Holocaust, and honor those who survived. I pray that those who hear this message will be better equipped to stand against anti-Semitism and all forms of humanities, of man's inhumanity to man. In Messiah's name I pray, amen, amen. and amen. This is the first of a two-part series on the Holocaust. Today I want to lay out um, some foundational definitions and principles about the Holocaust and give you kind of a big picture. Next week, we will go to Ter the Terezin Ghetto, north of Prague, in the Czech Republic. And there, we're going to meet some extraordinary people and see how they lived and how they died. Let's open with scripture. Psalm 102. There we go. Uh, the welcome screen is on, and it will be difficult for people to read the, uh, the words. A prayer of the afflicted one, when he is faint and pours out his heart before Adonai. Adonai, hear my prayer. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Turn your ear to me. In the day I call, answer me quickly. For my iPad is going everywhere. For my days vanished like smoke, and my bones were burned like coals. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I even forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a pelican of the desert, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake like a lonely bird on a roof. My enemies taunt me all day. My Deriders use my names to curse, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mixed my drink with tears. Because of your indignation and wrath, for you have picked me up and tossed me aside. My days are like a lengthening shadow, and I wither away like the grass. But you... Adonai, sit enthroned forever. Your renown is from generation to generation. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her, for the appointed time has come. For her stones are dear to your hearts and to your servants, and they cherish her dust so the nations will fear Adonai's name and all the kings of the earth, your glory. For Adonai has rebuilt Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has turned to the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. Let it be written and let it be shown for a generation to come that a people to be created, may praise Adonai. For he looks down from his holy height, from heaven, Adonai gazes on the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those, who, those condemned to death, to declare the name of Adonai in Zion and praise him in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship Adonai. He brought down my strength. 
in mid-course. He shortened my days. I say, my God, do not take me up in the middle of my days. Your years endure through all generational generations. Long ago, you founded the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you change them, so they change. But you are the same. And your years will never end. The children of your servants will live. Their descendants will be established before you. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? A psalm that really addresses the Holocaust. I'm tapping the screens here, and then it, and it delays to light up, and then so I'm looking up there to make sure it's up. So we're going to play this game throughout, but that, I just wanted to let you know what's going on here. My first humanitarian trip to Israel, my humanitarian aid trip to Israel was in 2005. And during that trip, I visited with Holocaust survivors on two occasions. The first was uh, at Abundant Bread of, of Salvation in Netanya. And it was run by a Jewish believer, Brian Slater. And one of the outreaches out, uh, that he had is a food pantry which serves many Holocaust survivors amongst the 350 families he serves on a monthly basis. It was my first time being with Holocaust survivors. There were maybe 30, 35 of them, and we had cake and coffee with them. And as I looked around, there was a, a gentleman sitting over there, and he had a short sleeve shirt on. And on his arm was the blue A with a number. As the, as the afternoon progressed, I finally just got up because maybe one or two spoke English and that was it. I just went around and I squeezed their shoulders. I didn't know what else to do. At the end, Brian said, what, what would you like them to know? And he said, tell them what, tell what happened. Do not let it happen again. That is the cry of the Holocaust survivor's heart. They are still saving the world. The next visit was to Haifa House, where there are 70 Holocaust um, survivors in residence there. And we walked in, and it happened to be the same day that the ID, a few IDF soldiers were there visiting. Now, they come periodically, and we didn't plan it. I looked over, and there in the corner was a little lady with long white hair, and at her knee, kneeling down in front of her, were four IDF soldiers. And all I could think of was, thank you, God, that she sees a fruit of her suffering and that they were there honoring her. In May 2017, I attended an eight-day leadership seminar for educators on the Holocaust at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem and, and later in August, uh, a graduate seminar in Washington, D.C. This presentation is, was written uh, mostly by Stephanie Kay, who, who was one of the instructors. In addition, there is a website called Echoes and Refre Reflections, and it's echoesandreflections.org, and it was created with a joint effort of the ADL, the USC Shoah Foundation in Yad Vashem, and Stephanie was a part of this. There are teaching materials, videos, lesson plans, handouts for students in middle school and high school and beyond. Yesterday I was uh, at the grandmother's uh, grandparents' day at, at my grandson's school. He's in, he's in seventh grade. And um, afterwards, I. I determined I was going to go hunt down the, the uh, principal and tell him about Echoes and Reflections. I walked out of Westray's classroom, and there he was. And so I told him, and 
he's going to pass this information on echoesandreflections.org to their Bible teacher, who's also a Jewish believer. And I found out later is a good friend of my daughter-in-law's. So how about that? That way I know for sure she's going to get it. So anyway, in preparing for this, I learned uh, some interesting information, and that's going to be hard to read. But suffice it to say, it's the United Nations Convention on the Prevention of Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. The word genocide was first coined in 1944 by a Polish lawyer, Raphael Lemkin. It consists of a Greek word, prefix genos, meaning race or tribe, and the Latin suffix, meaning side, uh, aside, meaning killing, C-I-D-E. It was first recognized as a crime in 1948, or 46, by the United Nations, and then this convention was ratified in 48. It's an independent crime. And this slide says that genocide means any of the following. Killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting the group on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. What was the Holocaust? The Holocaust was the genocide of the Jews. There were no other victims of the Holocaust, only the Jews. You do not do any victim group of Nazi persecution a favor by trying to make them victims of the Holocaust. The final solution was the annihilation of the Jewish people. There were other victims of the Nazi perpetrators and collaborators between 1939 and 45. The Nazis prepared three genocides, the Jews, the Sinta Roma, gypsies, there were 900 to 1,000 of them, 100,000 of them, 90 to 100,000, and Poles. Given time and success, there would most likely have been a genocide of the Czechs and the Baltic peoples. Some have said there were 11 million that lost their lives, and 29 million if you count Soviet POWs and other in collateral damage. Somewhere between 35 and 40 million died in the European theater. All but five and a half to six million were not Jewish. The Holocaust was a Jewish event. There are three definitions um, of the Holocaust in Echoes and Reflections. One is um, from the United States Holocaust Memorial D D Museum in Washington, D.C., the Imperial War Museum in London, and of course Yad Vashem, and we're going to use this one, and I don't know how, that you can really read it very well, but anyway, the Holocaust, I'm going to focus on the opening line, was unprecedented genocide, total and systematic, perpetrated by Nazi Germany and its collaborators with the aim of annihilating the Jewish people. There are four elements that make the Holocaust unprecedented. The totality, the tar Holocaust targeted every single Jew as defined by the Nazis, meaning, for instance, it would include converts. Universality, all the Jews everywhere. Ideology. Most genocides have a pragmatic, pragmatical, practical issues like land, oil, water, and the rationalization to cover up these practical concerns. Not so with the Holocaust. The Germans killed their workforce. This was totally a non-pragmatic ideology. Only the Holocaust is a genocide with the ideology followed by pragmatism. And the fourth element is racism, hierarchy of the races, with the Nordic ones at the top. 
The who of the Holocaust. Traditionally, there are three groups. The Jews, perpetrators, and the bystanders, which is a subgroup. They have collaborators and, and rescuers are included in that group. This is a very important slide for this reason. They are all human beings. Jews are not less human. Bystanders, the righteous generals, are not more than human, although they acted in more than human ways. A perpetrator is not a monster. A perpetrator is also a human being. If you make him a monster, he's easily discounted. We aren't monsters. They aren't like us. And we're all done. Perpetrators are human beings, like you and me, who made evil choices and acted on them. There's some foundational principles for you. Life before the war. In order to know what we lost, we need to know Music, but who were the Jews before 1933? Where do they live? How do they live? What did they contribute to the world? What were their dreams? There was tremendous cultural and spiritual and academic life in the pre-war Jewish world. Jews were artists and scholars and musicians and writers. There were great Torah scholars. All of this was lost in the Holocaust. It wasn't six million who died. It was whole worlds worlds of families and learning and art. We lived in the center of Berlin. My parents were upper middle class. My father was a sales representative for a large textile mill. He earned a very nice living. We had a nice apartment. Uh, the ambience was 
cultured, we had music. Uh, I remember my parents dressing up in evening clothes and going to the opera. We had uh, theater and they would take us along. Uh, we uh, were comfortable economically, at least before the uh, National Socialist regime took over in Germany. I'm talking about the early years that I remember, in the early 1930s, before 1933. My father, in particular, was German first and Jewish second. Now, this does not mean that he was not an observant Jew. We, we were what was then called observant. In this country, the USA, this can be translated into conservative. We observed all the holidays. We went to uh, services Friday night and uh, Saturday morning. If my father didn't have to work, he made sure that I went and my brother went. Uh, we both, my brother and I, uh, sang in the synagogue choir. Usually the synagogues had boys' choirs. Uh, we celebrated all the holidays. Uh, my father never worked on the holidays. We were, without keeping a kosher home, yet we observed all the traditions. My father we lived was in the center of Berlin. My parents I, were upper middle class. My father was the same way. I had the same type father. That was Henry Sinison. Daily life. It was a world of children and mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters. Ordinary people. It was an ordinary life and an extraordinary life. It was a life well lived and a life that deserved to live. The Jews faced choiceless choices. Everyone had a choice but the Jews. There were no good options. The term choiceless choiceless was created by Professor Lawrence Langer. He's um, uh, a renowned scholar, a foremost scholar on the Holocaust in the fields of literature and testimony. This was a designated experience of the Jews in the Holocaust. Everyone had a choice but the Jews. Eter external life was out of their control. What kept you alive this morning might not keep you alive tomorrow afternoon. Do you have a baby in the ghetto? Do you pray? Do you keep holidays? Do you not eat bread during Passover? The agenda was death. Jews were not supposed to live. In the Warsaw ghetto, they lived on 187 calories a day. They hoped you would starve, die of disease, and if not, they continued to make other plans. In spite of that, the Jews, many of them, chose to make human choices. They chose to continue life. And they chose to continue to teach and write and perform and pray. Stephanie summarized what Jewish people lost in one word, innocence. This is Ruth Brand's story about Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur. I can tell you uh, the Yom Kippur day in Auschwitz, in Birkenau. And then you realize how we had to help each other. That day, my cousin Chaya and I were working in near the crematorium. And we had to dig in the ashes of our Kedoshim. My cousin and I decided that we're going to fast. It was a simple decision. We're not going to drink that coffee, so-called coffee in the morning. And the lunch that we get, that soup, we're going to carry it back into the camp. By this time, each one of us had already a uh, cup for the food, which we carried on a string tied around our waist, and we also had a spoon. We were already civilized people. 
And um, so that was our decision. The SS found out that we were fasting. So they decided to give us a present. Get up. Run. Lay down. Push-ups. What they didn't. And the dogs after us. And if somebody falls, the dogs bite them. And uh, this went on I don't know how long. And then we are told, go sit down and eat. So we go sit down. Most of the girls start eating. I'm sitting there with my cousin. And so I'm not eating. And she says, okay, I won't eat either. Then the other girls say, What's happening to you? Why aren't you eating? My cousin says, she's much younger than I am. She doesn't want to eat, so I can't eat either. So he asked me, what's with you? I says, well, today is Yom Kippur and I'm fasting. And he said, don't you see that God doesn't want us to fast? If he wanted us to fast, he would have given us much better conditions. And I say, well, maybe he wants to see that Dafka, that in spite of it, we are still going to fast. So we're fasting. And in the evening when we took that soup back to the camp, it was sour. It was spoiled because it was a very, very hot day in Auschwitz that day. Of Yom Kippur, 1944. Okay, the video's ended. I can tell you. Uh, she said, we had a cup and a spoon. And, yes, with a string tied around our waist, we were already civilized. What does it mean to be a civilized person? Did you notice the peer pressure? She modeled a behavior such that Haya could be more than she planned or thought she could be. Davka, in spite of. What was her answer? Don't you realize God wants us to fast? Ruth knew before she came to Auschwitz-Birkenau who she was and what mattered. She knew her red lines and boundaries. Do you know yours? Do I know mine? Eric Taylor, who uh, made this piece of art, was a liberator at Bergen-Belsen. It's an example of primary source material, German and Jewish. Oral testimonies, testimonies art, and diaries Those are all um, primary source materials. When they came and told you you were leaving, you could take two suitcases. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what the weather's going to be, so how do you pack? You don't know how long you're going to be there. Do you take pictures? Should we pack sheets and towels? Upon arrival at the concentration camp, the suitcases were confiscated. All they had were the clothes on their backs, and even that might have been taken and they were given something else to wear and their head was shaved. What does it mean to have nothing? The return to life and hopefully, come on, we're returning to, okay. At the end of the war, there were 11,000 Jewish individuals, displaced persons in Bergen-Belsen. It was the only exclusively Jewish displaced persons camp in the British zone of Germany. 
1946, there were over 1,070 weddings in Berzenbelken. So in six to seven a day, sometimes 20 a week. What does it mean to survive the Holocaust and commit your life to another human being, having experienced a world where all of humanity has failed? What do you have to be to commit to another person? Between 1946 and 1950, when Bergen-Belsen was disbanded, approximately 2,000 babies were born in the hospital. Many were named after the first Allied doctor to liberate the camp, Glenn Hughes. There's a story about, well, no, I'm going to tell this story. I had, a few years ago, uh, a f my friend in Jacksonville, uh, Elaine, knew a couple who, uh, the husband was a Holocaust survivor, and she invited him over for, for lunch on Sunday. And he said, after I got out, I walked around. I didn't know who of my family was still alive. Where would I go? Where would I look? And when I ate something, my body would swell up because it hadn't been f used to food. He weighed 62 pounds when he left the concentration camp. But as we know, these Holocaust survivors built lives. They made lives. They gave to their communities. These are real heroes if you want some heroes to follow and to hold up to your children and grandchildren. What is the real revenge? Emil Frankenheim wrote an essay, The 614th Commandment. There are 613 for those of commandments in Judea, traditional Judaism, in case there are those online that didn't know that. And as my friend Stephanie said, Oh, with 10, we were just getting started. The 614th commandment is this. Grant Hitler no posthumous victory. Revenge is having babies and making families. Oh, by the way, there's a story that goes that the survivors only had two children. The reason is because if I have to run, I can only carry two babies. The real revenge? Grandchildren. The nuclear family was complete. Remember I said there were three groups? The, uh, we'll get this slide up here. Come on. There we go. The Jews, the persecutors, and the bystanders. Take a look at this picture. The Jews are going across the bridge in the Loach ghetto. It was on either side of this street. You see a soldier there, perpetrator. He doesn't even have a gun. But what else do you see? You see a trolley car with people riding it, going to work, going shopping. So now let's talk about the perpetrator. You know, you think policemen are, your, are good, that they're there to protect you. In this picture, the person doing the shooting is a policeman. The perpetrators were everyone. They were the lawyers, the doctors, the PhD, the truck drivers, your neighbors. And another thing that's very important, it wasn't just the Germans kill, uh, not just the Nazis, the Romanians killed 300,000 of their Jewish neighbors. I remember in class in Yad Vashem, they were talking about one group. It was in Poland. They didn't even know to be told to kill the Jewish people. They started before they even got the orders. Jan Gross, in the book Neighbors, he writes, on a, on a summer day in 1941 in Nazi-occupied Poland, half of the town in Jedwabny brutally murdered the other half. 
1,600 men, women, and children, all but seven of the town's Jews. The Edwamni's Jews came to be murdered not by faceless Nazis, but by the people who knew them well. And what happened there happened over and over in place after place, Latvia, Poland, Estonia. Know this, the perpetrators always had a choice. And let me say this again, the perpetrators always had a choice. It was made clear to us that we could refuse to obey an order to, uh, to participate in the, that word means final solution, without adverse consequences. This is a killing outside of Vilna in Lithuania. At Nuremberg, they insisted, insisted they were only following orders. And the and I, Orpo killing units, and I think these are the police killing units, no one was ever shot, ever brought to trial for refusing to shoot and kill non-combatants, not kill Jews. If you said no, you were sent to another unit. The perpetrator did what he did because he wanted to do it. He's telling us because we knew there were no adverse consequences, because they believed in it. No evidence that any German was shot, none, because he refused to kill innocent Jewish people. It doesn't exist, that evidence doesn't exist. They were unrepentant. The quote says, I know of no case and still know of no case today where one of us was sentenced to death which I, because he did not want to take part in the execution of the Jews. Why this picture? It's a kindergarten. Because to them, this was the real enemy. If the children live, we will have to do this all over again in about 20 years. And that's why when children under seven arrived at concentration camps, they were immediately eliminated. The other ones, the older ones, were put to work. This is about, this video is about a police battalion 101, and I don't know if it's going to play or not. There it goes. For the invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, the Nazis gathered together the greatest number of executioners ever assembled. This is Lieutenant Hartwig Nade, a former clerk and leader of the Reserve Police Battalion 101. This dad's army of mostly middle-aged men policed the conquered lands of the Reich. Nade's men were assembled on July the 12th, 1942. Their commanding officer told them their real task, to shoot men, women and children. He made an offer. Any of the older men who objected could leave. In the silence that followed, only one man immediately refused to become an executioner. The killing tour of Battalion 101 had begun. At Jojeflau, the battalion doctor instructed how to humanely kill with a shot to the head. But policemen missed shots and became covered in blood. Next month at Lomashi, Nade formed a firing squad to distance his executioners from the bodies. As the killing took its psychological toll, the alcohol ration was doubled. By the time the battalion reached Sarakonla, the men were regularly required to kill babies, and most made themselves drunk before loading their guns. From September, the battalion began rounding up Jews to send to the new killing centers. Jews in hiding were rounded up and shot in so-called Jew hunts from July. The killings reached their nadir in 1943. The battalion took machine guns to Majdanek death camp. Officers blared music to cover the shooting as 16,500 were killed in the day. The next day the music moved to Poinatova. 14,000 died. By the time the tour ended, 
38,000 men, women and children had been killed by a battalion of less than 500 men. Okay, you may stop the video now. The median age of these men was 36. Many were married. And one soldier did uh, put down his gun and wanted to go back to Hamburg and 11 more followed. So now let's talk about the bystanders. Where do you stand? The man, one of the men who took this picture is a book, um, Mendel Grossman, My Secret Camera. He took, they, they found 10,000 negatives. Many of them uh, were good, but he risked his life to take these pictures. So let's look at this picture um, of the building and the people. What do you see? It's a synagogue that's burning and people are watching. Do they look frightened? What don't you see? No water, no fire department. No one seems to be too upset. Now this is interesting. The photographer shows the back of pe the people. He's protecting them. They're faceless. Here's another couple, two videos about bystanders. Maybe. Standing by. I was chosen by. as a courier, Juan, because before, every, since my high school, every vacations I spent abroad in some other country. At the age, you know, 18, 19, 20, it, to spend vacations in Poland, crazy. <laughs> so I went to Romania, to Germany, Switzerland, France, England. So I knew languages. Then I was young and strong. Then I was a sportsman, horseback riding, tennis. I was a good skier. This is why they chose me as a courier to France at that time. And I knew Europe because I was in so many countries. And I was sent at the end of December 1939 still to France, where the Polish government in exile resided, recognized by the French government. People ask me for this, so you talk to Roosevelt. What Roosevelt What was his reaction? President Roosevelt. Yes, he told me, he, 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 at that time he was informed that I was going back to Poland by the Polish ambassador who, by diplomatic protocol, introduced me to the president. So he knew so. When he gave me his hand, this is the end. So I was sort of an inspired and I wanted to pin him down a little. So I told him, Mr. President, I'm going to Poland. Every leader will know that I spoke to President Roosevelt. Sir, everybody will ask me, what did the President tell you? Mr. President, what do I answer? And I remember this. You will tell your leaders that we shall win this war. He's, he, he, he continuously smoked a long cigarette, a long cigarette holder. That we shall win this war. The guilty ones will be punished for their crimes. Justice. Freedom shall prevail. You will tell your nation that they have a friend in this house. This is what you will tell them. I couldn't tell you, Mr. President, that's all. Okay, end the video, please. Quite a bystander, isn't he, at that moment? 
So I heard about the uh, uh, Holocaust Memorial Center and I went up there and there was a guy by the name of Friedman there, Mark Friedman, that was the director of it before Pina Spetkank uh, or Silverstein as she, she's known now. And uh, I started to speak to the youngsters and to the grown-ups. It's not just the youngsters. It's the grown-ups too that have to know. Because they're, 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 the, they're, they're the ones that are now. The young people are later, until they grew up to be their age. So it is not, we, we have to be able to reach. We haven't learned anything. What has humanity learned? Nothing. You know, there's uh, uh, something that uh, uh, Freud said, and uh, uh, it, 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 it is so concise. He said, he said, it is a matter of indifference who actually committed this crime. Psychology is only concerned to know who desired it emotionally and who welcomed it when it was done. And for that reason, all of the human family is equally guilty. I didn't write that, Freud did. And he's right. Because we are concerned, we read the newspaper and we listen to television, but what are we, going to, what, what, what are we doing about it? And with the revisionists that you have today, the Aryan nations and, and the, the, the Heritage Front and, and his own Samizdat, uh, his Zundel thing down there. You know, it's, 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 it's really tough to live with knowing what you know and learning or hearing what is being said about it. And it hurts. It's deep. It's as if somebody puts a knife into your chest. If you knew and you didn't do anything, I'm sorry, they're having a hard time hearing uh, the video. That one's a tough one. That was a tough one to hear. Oh, the air conditioning is on. If you would turn it off for just a few more moments, please. We're almost done. Oh, they can't hear the videos above the air conditioning. All right, well, I'm going to talk uh, just uh, the collaborators. Although the exact number of people who collaborated with the Germans in the murder of the Jews will never be known, it's clear that through, without widespread collaboration and silent approval, the Nazis could not have murdered six million Jews from all over Europe. The collaborators assisted Nazis in military takeover of their country, fought in various military formations on the side of Germany, revealed the names and locations of partisan fighters to the Nazis. Isn't that what George Soros did? Cooperated in the German governing of their countries and helped directly or indirectly in the murder of the Jews. And there's a few of their, of the countries, Poland, France, the Netherlands, Italy, Croatia, Hungary, Romania, Baltics, Ukraine. And this is from Echoes and Reflections. But now saving the Jews. Albert Einstein once said, the world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch without doing anything. Einstein left Germany in 1932 after his picture appeared in a magazine with one caption, not yet hanged. What? Not yet hanged. Hung. Hanged. What would the world have lost if we had lost him? The righteous recognized the face of the individual. They acted because they understood that what they didn't do as well as they, as what they did spoke volumes. The rescues, rescue involved rescuing not the Jew, just the Jew, but the rescuer. And it's the rescuers, few as they were, that enable us to teach the Holocaust. I think you've seen this video of Nicholas Winston 
But before I share it, I want to tell you a story. Um, the Yad Vashem has a library, uh, an online, well, it has a museum, but there's an online uh, database of the people killed in the Holocaust, and it's over 4 million pages right now. Survivor stories are often, the survivors often do not tell their children about what happened, but they will share with their grandchildren. And this one grandson asked his grandfather about his experience. They were living in Toronto, Canada. And he gave him the facts and figures, but there was one overriding grief that he could not escape, and that was the loss of his sister. And it just, his, he just got more and more and more emotional. So the grandson decided to gently end the conversation, which he did. And the grandson went out to that library, and he entered his name. Well, up popped his record. And this is a database of people who perished in the Holocaust, and there is his grandfather. He scrolled down, and at the bottom was his sister's name. She had entered her brothers because she thought he had died. And there is a video out there, I will bring it next week, of the two after 65 years meeting in Hamburg because they realized that they were both alive. God bless those who walk through this terrible walk and heal the memories of those that were lost. And I thank you for those survivors that continue and to remind us that all of us need to be aware and tell the story. In Yeshua's name, I pray. Amen. <laughs>